What if that nagging feeling in the back of your neck was real? What if those hands reaching out from the dark that you believed were there, were there? What if the monster in the basement really existed? And what if there was really something under the bed? Would you have the courage to face your fears? Hello, brave souls. I'm your host, Paul Rondo. And this week's episode, we have four stories that revolve around spooky occurrences with uh, televisions, all varying from just very short, basic stories to much more complex kind of uh, mind bending stories that I really enjoy. So I hope you enjoy it. And for the first one up, we have 12 minutes. In the fall of 1987, local news channel WSB-TV2 of Atlanta, Georgia was attempting to fill a scheduling gap in their Sunday morning lineup. After a few solicitations by local business owners, they decided to allow the young Reverend Marley Sachs to take the available hour block to do a religiously themed show. It premiered October 18th with little promotion. The show was standard religious fare and consisted of the Reverend sitting in a simple chair reading passages from the Bible to the camera and discussing their interpretations and significance to our modern day-to-day life. The show received a reasonable number of viewers and continued to be shown into early December. It was then that the studio began to receive extremely strange complaints from viewers of Words of Light with Reverend Marley Sachs. Calls were from women, and women only, who vaguely referred to uncomfortable feelings they had at very specific intervals during the program. They described feelings of nausea, back pain, dizziness, and blurred vision. These callers, for no discernible reason, were convinced that it was the viewing of this program that was causing these symptoms. It was later determined, after three weeks of complaints, that these feelings were happening at roughly 12-minute intervals during the course of the program. The small studio staff checked all recording equipment, both audio and video, and found nothing faulty. When the Reverend was made aware of these incidents, he merely shrugged and stated cryptically that some can't handle the voice of God. The head of the studio, at a loss to explain the cause of these complaints, decided to continue running the program. By February, viewership had dropped sharply and it was decided to pull the plug on the show. The studio had figured it would be more prudent to spend as much time as possible on the news story that had the other two local news networks abuzz. The miscarriage epidemic, starting sometime in November, the number of healthy pregnant women miscarrying in the Atlanta metropolitan area had reached over 300. The CDC could find no discernible cause for this terrifying occurrence. The Reverend took the show's cancellation with what could only be described as abject difference. When informed, he made no protest, merely nodded, almost knowingly. He left the studio after the last episode was filmed without so much as a word and dropped off the face of the earth. No one ever heard from him again, not his former congregation, or any member of the church. The studio moved on, filling the slot with an infomercial, and continued to concentrate on the miscarriage story. A year and a half later, an intern at the WSB studios discovered the tapes of The Words of Light, and began going through them in an attempt to find stock footage for an upcoming piece the station was doing on the impact religion had on the city. The Atlanta incident, as the miscarriage epidemic became known as in the medical journals, petered out three months after the studio canceled the Reverend Sack's show 
that had already began to fade from the public consciousness. As the intern went through the tapes, he accidentally made a disturbing discovery about the footage. While attempting to stop one recording at 10 minutes and 45 seconds, he mistakenly jammed the fast-forward button down. While the footage whizzed by, he attempted to pry up the button with a screwdriver. Just as he succeeded, the tape stopped at 32 minutes and 1 second. The intern actually fell out of his chair when he looked up at what he saw on the frozen screen. The image of a badly decomposed severed head filled up the entire frame. As he collected himself, he moved to film back a few frames, then forward, and realized that his mind was not playing tricks on him. He began going through the rest of the recording, and soon discovered that exactly 12 minute intervals, the image would appear for one frame. Thinking of some practical joke being played on in the new guy, he presented it to one of the firm technicians, ready to be mocked. The technician was just as puzzled as he was. No one had touched the footage since the cancellation of the show. After the studio had closed for the night, the intern convinced the tech to help him go through all the tapes of Word of Light. They discovered that every single episode had the same horrifying anomaly. They also realized that as the show progressed, the image had become more disgusting as maggots began to eat away at the loose flesh and pieces of hair and skin seemed to have fallen off exponentially. The tech made clear to the intern that what they were seeing was technically impossible since the film itself showed absolutely no signs of splicing and he himself had been at every filling of the show and knew of no time when the image would be inserted in the frame. All this was presented to the studio head, who, fearing some kind of backlash over allowing this to get on the air, ordered all the tapes destroyed. He told the intern and tech they had no interest in knowing who did it at this point. Only that, covering their collective asses, is all that's important now. He demanded that they mention this to no one. The tech easily moved on, remembering the incident as a darkly funny personal anecdote, but the intern wouldn't let it go. He made copies of as many tapes as he could before they were wiped, and took them to see if he could find anything else in them that might point to who did this or why they would. A week later, he attempted to rope the tech into helping him again, saying that he believed he had discovered something even more disturbing than the images themselves. When the single frames were edited together in chronological order, the head's mouth appeared to be moving as it was trying to form words. The tech, fearing for his job, told him to get rid of the copies and to not talk about it again. A week later, police responded to a 911 call made by an elderly woman in one of the Atlanta suburbs at dusk. She had heard horrible noises coming from her next-door neighbor's house, where a young couple lived. She told the emergency responder that the wife was pregnant and that she was terrified that something had happened. When the officers arrived on the scene, 20 minutes later, they found no lights on in the window and the front door ajar. They moved in slowly, then they made their way into the living room. Inside, they found a young woman dead, with her abdomen slashed open. The wound was jagged and a trail of blood led from the body to the couch on the far end of the room. There sat her husband, the studio intern, naked. The corpse was unborn child at his feet, dying. In his hand, he felt the rusty piece of metal sliding he had used to gut his pregnant wife. The television was on and playing an 18 second loop of silent footage of a decomposing head mouthing unintelligible words. The story at the police precinct this day goes that the intern kept saying under his breath over and over again as it led him away, the light of God calls them. Christ. Yeah, I didn't think that was going to turn into uh, gutting your wife and 
murdering your unborn baby. That one got weird and kind of messed up at the end. Um, it was kind of interesting for a while until the end. <laughs> and then I wasn't a huge fan of it. But our next story is called The Abandoned Television. It lay there on the side of the road, a subtle box. Inside it, a standard television set. Nothing extravagant, but very nice. A sign is attached. It reads, free. You're tempted by the offer. A seemingly perfect television with all parts included free of charge. No question asked, but you're taken back by it. Why on earth would any person leave a free TV for any stranger who stumbles upon it? You set rationality aside and pick up the box. You take it to your place of residence, set everything up. By the time everything is ready, it's late, but you've worked hard to put this together, and you're going to watch some television before heading to bed. You turn the television on. The glare is now the only source of light in the entire room. It starts on an apparently random channel, number 371. It's a dark living room only visible by a glaring, unseen light source. A tall male, presumably in his late 20s, is also in the room. He sits in front of the light source. As you watch him, you notice that only his eyes are moving, in a rapid fire fashion, darting left to right, up and down. After a while, you become somewhat bored of this, and will now start to look at his surroundings. They're rather simple, things you see in anybody's living room. Couch coffee table, etc. But then two large white circular things appear, and they begin moving in rapid pace around the man. He's completely unaware of this. You're intrigued by these things, and cannot help but stare at them, wherever they may lead you. Eventually the man is attacked by these things, and the screen goes entirely black, with no glaring. You may assume this means the television is broken, but it's not. It turns back on again, in another location. This time, a rather large woman is sitting on the edge of her bed, looking at a glaring light source, and her eyes are darting in the same fashion as the previous person. The same thing occurs. Two large white circular objects appear and go in several directions behind the unsuspecting woman. You again follow them and cannot help it. As in the previous video, the things attacks the woman and the screen cuts to complete darkness. The same process occurs three more times, but then, just before the final video, a small red light turns on from the top of your television set, and the final video begins to play. In this video, you see yourself, and you're sitting in your living room, moving your eyes rapidly in front of a glaring light source, and two large white circular objects appear and move at the fastest rate ever. You cannot look away now, and just before the thing is about to attack you in the video, you're jumped on by something, something large, jet black, with two large, white eyes. I actually kind of enjoy these stories where it's it's just like a POV video. You just it's like, hey, imagine yourself doing this. Um, it's not overly creepy. I could see this being a bit creepy if you threw some music in the background and we're listening to this in the dark. But for me, it's like 1030 in the morning. <laughs> I'm reading scary stories because it's the only time my voice works. But yeah, I, I like these stories. They're, they're kind of interesting. This one's not bad. 
The TV one kind of gets me because I have a TV in like every freaking room in my house, which I think most people do nowadays, so. Our next story is called After the Sign-Off. After I'd got back from the army, I drifted around the Midwest a bit and ended up living just outside a small village in rural north central Ohio. This was back in the late 70s, early 80s. About the only place I could afford in those days was an old trailer in a dingy little park off a two-lane county road. I was delivering pizzas for a little shop in the village, and being out in the middle of nowhere, the business dried up around 10 p.m., or so every night. These were in the days before the internet, or even TV, as you young ones know it now. Because of a freak of geography or propagation, my area could barely get the big stations out of Columbus. So the only TV we had in the corner of my county was a small, independent, low-power station run by a local family out of their barn. They'd inherited the transmitter and studio equipment of one of the Columbus stations back in the 50s when they've converted to color. It was really antiquated stuff. The only broadcast in black and white, aside from 15 minutes of local news every evening, a farm report on Saturday morning, and an evangelical Christian sermon on Sunday. The programming was nothing more than scratchy 16mm prints of old monogram serials, government training films, public domain cartoons, and whatever other random junk they could find. I gave the family credit. It wasn't Hollywood. But they did the best they could for the community with what little they had. This was what constituted after-work entertainment in my neck of the woods. After I'd get home from my shift, my routine was to crack open a beer, settle in on the sofa, and drink myself into a stupor while Doc Garrett stared down the black Vaccaro on Main Street in Tombstone for the 20th time, or whatever. The station shut down at midnight every night. It was peculiar. In the middle of a movie, it would just cut abruptly to a photo of the transmitter, a brief announcement of the call sign, technical details, the national anthem played from a scratchy vinyl record, and then the familiar Indian head test pattern accompanied by a one kilohertz test tone. I pictured in my head at that moment the lone studio engineer flipping the switch to the ancient test pattern generator, yawning lightly as he turned the light out in the studio, putting on his hat and coat, and heading out into the night for his 30-minute drive home. The transmitter tower stood guard over the countryside, solemnly blinking red warning lights up its length and beaming out its unchanging signal from another era. Now it was truly nighttime. The county was asleep. By this time, I'd already be at least half out of it, swirling lazily in alcoholic eddies. With the steady reassuring tone of my ears and the unchanging luminosity from the picture tube illuminating my eyelids from one side. Maybe the furnace in the back would cough to life, blowing a gentle warm breeze across me. It was comfortable, womb-like. Another anonymous day and an anonymous life passed into anonymous history. One anonymous night, something caught my eye. Even when they're closed and you faded off into Neverland, you somehow remain acutely aware of your surroundings and the when they've changed however slightly. I dragged one eye open. The test tone was still flowing from the TV speaker, but the familiar circles and scratch hatches of the test pattern was gone. It was dark. The only thing visible was a horrible, grinning white face floating, washed out bright white, in a field of black on the right side of the screen. 
I started out of my position on the sofa, shaking my head out. By the time I looked again, the pattern had scratched itself back onto the screen. It took a couple of minutes of heavy breathing to calm myself down. Weird dream. I drifted off again, uneasily. The next day passed much like the day before, and the next. I mentioned my vision to one of my work buddies, and we laughed it off. He suggested I switch brands of beer. By the end of the week, I'd nearly forgotten about it. Friday night, beer in hand, a couple of cold slices of pepperoni and mushroom from an order that no one was home to take and pay for. The address was right, but the house was dark and empty. My boss and my friend divvied it up, and I took my share home for dinner. The station signed off in the middle of an instructional film from a 1940s Burroughs adding machine. A smartly dressed career gal with lacquered hair and lipstick smile was pressing buttons. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light. A thousand hertz filled the air. The county slept. Sudden darkness from the other side of my eyelids wrapped cold fingers around my heart. I had to resist the urge to open my eyes suddenly. I managed to creep them open slightly, ever so carefully. On the right half of my screen, a bright white blob twisted around, leaving a smeared trail. I could see now that the grinning, rigid face was one of those comedy masks that you usually see paired with a frowning one when referring to the theater. It was attached to a man's torso, tense and glistening, every muscle taut bound with some kind of thin cord. The stiffness of his struggling suggested a chair. The picture was murky, indistinct. I'd seen a video like this once, when I'd drifted from Columbus years before and attended an experimental theater exhibition by some student radicals at OSU. They were using one of the newfangled portable videotape machines that were all the rage then. One of those Japanese companies made them. Sony, I think it was. Movies for the masses. The technology was primitive. The images looked like ghosts. This was no dream. I looked around the room, picked up an empty beer can. I was awake, no question about it. The man in the mask was still there on the screen. Except, now there was another person beside him, occupying the left half. I only saw a thick arm and a torso clad in what looked like a short-sleeved work shirt. The head was off the screen. The arm raised and crossed the mask, a quivering, straining motion bringing the muscles to the surface, and a brief, narrow flash of reflected light that lingered on the screen at the man's neck. The rigid smile was horribly sideways, then up and around at an impossible angle. I saw for only a moment an ear framed by hair and sideburns. Something dark and copious poured down the bound man's shoulders and chest below where the head had been. The picture zigzagged with static and the test pattern returned. The old war chief peered stoically to the right half of the screen, unperturbed. All this took place within five seconds or so. It was about a quarter to three in the morning. Once I'd gotten my hands to work again, I piled my clothes back on and set out towards the payphone at the entrance of my trailer park, marked by a solitary blue-white mercury lamp. The soft crunch of my boots in the snow evaporated in the air. The still winter dark seemed full of silent eyes. I spun the dial around to zero. Relays clicked in the earpiece. A bored, slightly annoyed-sounding woman answered. And after putting up with a few seconds of me gibbering, 
connected me to an equally bored police dispatcher in a town 13 miles away. There was no physical crime to investigate. I was probably just drunk and had a bad dream. There was nothing to warrant a police officer to come and inspect anything at this time. He was nice enough to take a statement over the phone, while I stood there freezing, trying to piece together what I'd seen. The next day, a cop did stop by the farm where the family operated their station. They were baffled. The studio was locked and unattended overnight, after the studio manager had switched over to the test pattern and gone home. They had no videotape equipment and didn't bother monitoring what went over the air at night. No one else in the area that they could find was awake at night with the TV on, and hardly anyone had VCRs in those days. As far as I know, the only witnesses were me and whoever intruded into the signal. I left the TV off at night after that, but unaccustomed by the silence, it was even more oppressive. I managed to get used to it eventually. There was a postscript. About a month afterward, I came home from my shift at about 10.30. The snow had melted, but it was still cold, and the ground was frozen. There was a pizza box on my doorstep. I picked it up. It was far too light. It was cold. Something stiff rattled inside. I opened it up in the dim glow of my porch light. What was inside was a blood-smeared comedy mask. None of my neighbors had seen anyone in the area. They'd gone to bed early, as people in the country usually do. The police told me it was probably some bored kid playing a sick prank. There wasn't much to do around in those days. Our final story is called 9327. It was 1 a.m. Everyone else was asleep except for me. What was I doing? Laying on my couch, watching late night television. It's this time when all the interesting stuff is on TV. I was in the middle of watching a documentary on Russian spies when it was intercepted by the EAS system. Close and lock all your doors and windows. Stay away from others in your home. Do not make a sound. The TV spoke in its robotic words. The hell is this supposed to mean? I thought. If someone asks where you are, do not answer, the TV continued. Do not be afraid. Fear makes it worse. If the darkness around you seems to intensify, close your eyes and prepare for the worst. More updates will come shortly. The TV then started right where it left off. Although now, I wasn't concerned about the documentary. I took a look out the window to see if any sort of danger was outside, but nothing. Just the beautiful stars and bright full moon in the nighttime sky. Looking around, it seemed as if nobody was still awake. Odd. I know for sure I've seen more people in my neighborhood up even later than 1am. However, tonight, my street seemed utterly silent. No, unnaturally silent. The only thing I could hear was my TV, cars in the distance, and the sound of my own thoughts. Making sure the doors and windows were locked, I returned to the couch and started channel surfing. Maybe some sort of cartoon will get my mind off of this, I said, scanning the TV for some sort of relaxing TV show to watch. A few seconds later, I settled with a channel that was playing very old Disney cartoons. Half an hour went by, and I decided to have another look out the window. This time, however, the sky was blank. No moon, no stars. Just darkness. All the streetlights had gone out as well. This time, the sounds of cars had faded away too. Now, 
The only thing keeping me from plummeting in my head was the television. I wish I could turn the light on in here, but that would wake everyone up in a heartbeat, I thought. Going back to the couch, I took a look at my phone. No new texts, nothing about this whole EAS report was on social media. It was like nobody else was going through it. Looking through my messages, nobody was online either. Even my best friend Liam, who usually stays up until 3am playing video games with his other friends, or at the bar getting absolutely wasted. I shot him a quick, hi text, only to receive no response. It didn't even show the red message. This was odd, I thought. He usually replies within seconds. A full 10 minutes go by, and still, no response. This wasn't like I was starting to get worried. Eventually, I tried to call him. It went directly to voicemail without even ringing. I was about to call him again, when another alert showed up on the TV. If you hear a knock on the door, do not answer it. Do not respond to anyone, no matter how familiar or human they may sound. Oh. Do not look at the night sky. The TV signal was beginning to go to shit. The pre-recorded message had one last thing to say, although I couldn't understand it in the immense static. The only thing I could make out was something about howling and covering my ears. As soon as the message concluded, the TV signal went right back up again. It was as if the message itself was to blame. This time, I flipped through the channels to find one of the news. Mysteriously, all the news channels were not getting signal. A few minutes later, there was a knock on the door, just like the EAS mentioned. I recognized the knock. It was Liam. Matt? It's me, Liam. Open up, will ya? Sounded like Liam, too. But there was one thing I knew. Liam wouldn't just come to my house at one in the morning without any explanation. I knew I wasn't supposed to answer to anyone or anything, but my curiosity got the best of me. Why? I asked. Don't you want to find out what the hell's going on out here? The voice cried through the window. Look outside. The sky. It was at that moment when I knew. That voice was not Liam. The TV then started glitching again. The knocking continued. Come on, man. I came all the way over here. How was he not waking anyone up? I thought to myself. The TV signal was getting worse. I know you're in there, the voice said, now viciously banging on the door. It sounded almost as if it was going to break it down. As much as I wanted to scream and get the other people in the house to wake up, I remember what the warning said. Stay away from others in your home. Do not be afraid. As long as I kept myself together, I should be fine. The banging didn't stop. Open the door, it raised its voice. I can help you. I stayed silent. The banging got even louder. I was amazed the door hadn't given away yet. Whatever was inside, it was screaming now, Let me in! It's getting closer! My curiosity was being tested again. The TV had lost signal by this point. I was thinking I was starting to lose it. How could I possibly be calm when a maniac is outside about to break into my house and do God knows what to me? It was probably the dumbest thing I could have done, but I got off the couch and quietly approached the door, looking through the peephole. I saw nothing. Nobody. Not even the front yard or the street up ahead. All I saw through the peephole was utter darkness. The banging calmed down and returned to calm, soft knocking. Look, I know you're confused. I am too. 
Who are you? I asked. It's Liam, he answered. Please let me in. It will be here soon. The TV signal then came back to present another EAS message. Cover your ears now. Hide. The pre-recorded message stated, Ignore the cries from help outside your door, no matter how human or desperate they may sound. Oh shit. I could hear from the other side of my door. Keep your ears covered and stay in hiding until the lights come back on. The power to the TV and clock cut. I made my way to the bathroom, locked the door, and hid inside the tub. Just as I put my hands against my ears, I could make out loud, obnoxious howling in the far distance, and whatever was at my door, screaming in great fear, fiercely banging on the door, begging me to let them in. Whatever was outside was so damn convincing, it sounded so real, almost exactly like Liam. I stayed in the tub for what seemed like hours. The TV in the living room had still not turned back on, leading me to believe the power was most likely still out. The only thing that was lighting up the room was the blinking lights on one of the electric toothbrushes on the sink. I couldn't hear anything anymore. I was beginning to think this whole nightmare was over, or if it was, another bad dream. The power had still not come back on, but the banging and screaming at the door had stopped. Uncovering my ears further confirmed that the only thing that was making noise was myself. I slowly got out of the tub and made my way into the living room. The clock on the wall read 9327. The hell? I thought. 9327? Since the clock was on, I assumed the power to the rest of the house came back on as well. Grabbing the remote to the TV off the table, I pressed the power button, only to get no response. The screen didn't even flicker or pop like it used to when I would turn it on. It showed no signs of life. I took a look out the window, but all I could see was darkness. It was as if someone had hung a thick black blanket over it. Looking out the peephole, the door gave the same sight. Nothing but darkness. It was getting to the point where I could barely see what was in the front of me, and I was starting to get extremely dizzy. Fascinatingly enough, I was able to find the couch to sit down. My head started to hurt, a lot in fact. My whole body started to ache and burn. It felt like I was on fire, and I was starting to hyperventilate and panic. The clock still showed the same time, 93.27. There was a knock on the door again. This time, it was another voice. Hey Matt, it's your brother. I could hear... You still up? I was in so much pain that I couldn't even comprehend what kind of answer I should give. I ended up just letting out a loud groan. I got up off the couch and made my way towards the door. You ignoring me again? I heard, looking through the peephole again. Couldn't see anything. The headache was getting worse and worse. It was getting to the point where I was beginning to lose my balance. I was starting to feel drowsy too. Hello? He knocked once more. I couldn't hold my eyes open any longer. I dozed off. When I awoke, I was in a hospital bed. What happened? You suffered from CO2 poisoning. One of the valves leading to your fireplace failed, the doctor said. How about everyone else? I asked. I'm afraid you're the only one that survived, the doctor said. Consider yourself lucky. The doctor left. Liam entered my room. How you doing, bud? Feeling better? He asked. I guess, I replied. I had the most bizarre dream of my life. Oh, that? He started, then looked me into the eye. That wasn't a dream. Man, that was... I really like that one. I, I like, um... I like weird stuff like that, where... They basically can't leave the house and there's something crazy happening and it's just some random spur of the moment thing that happens. And uh, you basically find out what kind of 
thing someone would do in a situation like that. They had another movie that was similar to that, where basically the person was, there was like an alien invasion happening, and uh, the TV was kind of like order them to do things, and it was it would get progressively worse, though. This one was insane. The movie was nuts. But uh, yeah, it gave me that kind of vibe. Kind of felt like an alien thing. But yeah, I really enjoyed that story. It's called 20 or 9327. And if you enjoyed that story, come back next time for some more spooky stories. And as always, remember to face your fears.